We um, have been hearing about Paul and how he had, had ba- gone back to Jerusalem after his missionary journeys, and he knew he was going to be arrested, and sure enough, that's what happened. So last week, we looked at the riot that happens in the temple and how Paul is um, basically rescued, in a sense, which is a bit of an irony here, by the Roman centurion who comes in and gets his guards around him and saves him from being beat to death. And then as they haul him back to the fortress, on the steps of the fortress, Paul asks if he can address the crowd. Last week we looked at him as he addressed, spoke to, you know, his fellow Jews in Jerusalem and told them the gospel message, basically his conversion story about how Jesus met him on the road to Damascus while he was going there to persecute Christians and how he had um, been back baptized. And when he mentions that, G- that God had sent him to the Gentiles, to these outsiders, that's when the riot resumed. And so they take him back in. They're going to whip him. They find out he's a Roman citizen. They're not allowed to whip him yet. And so that's where we pick up in the story. Paul is under arrest. Um, there's no charges yet, but the city is in an uproar over him being there at this point. So Acts 23, beginning in verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Be encouraged. Just as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so too you must testify in Rome. The next morning, some Jewish leaders formulated a plot and solemnly promised that they would not eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 people were involved in the conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have solemnly promised to eat nothing until we have killed Paul. You and the council must explain to the commander that you need Paul brought down to you. Pretend that you want to examine his case more closely. We're prepared to kill him before he arrives. Paul's sister had a son who heard about the ambush and he came to the military headquarters and reported it to Paul. Paul called for one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander because he has something to report to him. He took him to the commander and said, The prisoner Paul asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to tell you. The commander took him by the hand and withdrew to a place where they could speak privately. He asked, What do you have to report to me? He replied, Oops. The Jewish leaders have conspired to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow. They will pretend that they want to investigate his case more closely. Don't fall for it. More than 40 of them are waiting to ambush him. They have solemnly promised not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, awaiting your consent. The commander dismissed the young man, ordering him, don't tell anyone that you have brought this to my attention. The commander called two centurions and said, Prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to leave for Caesarea at 9 o'clock tonight. Have horses ready for Paul to ride so they may take him safely to Governor Felix. He wrote the following letter. Claudius Lysias, to the most honorable Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was almost killed by them. I was nearby with a unit of soldiers and I rescued him when I discovered that he was a Roman citizen. I wanted to find out why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their council. I discovered that they were accusing him about questions related to their law. I found no charge deserving of death or imprisonment. 
When I was informed of a conspiracy against his life, I sent him to you at once and ordered his accusers to bring their case against him before you. Following their orders, the soldiers took Paul during the night and brought him to Antipatris. The following day, they let the horsemen continue on with Paul while they returned to the military headquarters in Jerusalem. The horsemen entered Caesarea, delivered the letter to the governor, and brought Paul before them. After he read the letter, he asked Paul about his home province. When he learned that he was from Cilicia, the governor said, I will hear your case when your accusers arrive. Then he ordered that Paul be kept in custody in Herod's palace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, Holy Spirit, enlighten us. Help us to see clearly the things that we need to pay attention to as we study your word this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. So you may be wondering, wow, that's, I mean, that's a pretty long section of scripture that gives a lot of details that we don't normally get in a lot of our stories. And we haven't even had that in, in a lot of the sections of Acts. Why so much time talking about all these details of the soldiers being prepared and, you know, this journey from Jerusalem out? What we have to understand is that when we're reading all of Acts as a book, if we think about the journey we've been going on from the beginning until now, about halfway into the book of Acts, the, the camera, if you will, shifts over to Paul. And we begin to follow Paul's journey from being a persecutor when attacking the Christians to um, the really the foremost missionary in the early Christian world, the one who writes a lot of our New Testament. And what we want to see is, you know, how was it that Paul, having done nothing wrong, ends up in custody and ends up having to go all the way to the emperor in Rome for simply doing nothing more than being in the city of Jerusalem and having some people angry with him? And so what you see is sort of a, a perfect storm, how these events just continue to build, how the, you know, Paul is taken in, and at first they're grabbing him for safety, and then they take him into prison, and they, they keep him in there. They're going to whip him to find out why he's causing a riot. They find out he's a Roman citizen. They decide against that. So now they don't really know what to do with him. They can't really just let him go because the city will go and riot and maybe kill him again. And so then they find out there's this plot that these people want to kill this man. So now... The, Romans, the Roman um, leaders, they understand, okay, he is a Roman citizen. We have to treat him with respect. We can't just let him be killed by these people. So let's send him off to his home province, you know, somewhere far away. And so he's, this uh, Roman leader is wanting to put on a good show of being a protector of the Roman citizens. When in reality, most of the time, they didn't care a whole lot. They're mostly interested in themselves. So there's some political motivation here. And so Paul is sent on with the message, oh, I didn't find anything wrong with him, but I'm going to let you examine him. So now we're going to be moving into another setting with another trial. And that's what we'll be looking at in the following weeks. But before all of this begins, the very first verse that I read says that the night after all of this happened and Paul was arrested, that the Lord stood near him. That's in verse 11. Not an angel, not a vision, but Jesus stands near Paul. Last time we know of that Paul saw Jesus was on the road to Damascus, the story that he had just shared with the crowd. I don't know for sure, but I imagine the way we hear the narrative in the story that Paul may have very well been that night at his lowest point. 
in his ministry years. He had been arrested. He had been beaten. He had been left for dead. He had had some terrible things happen. But see, now he's back in his hometown, if you will. Not the place he was born, but the place where he spent his time studying as a student and preparing to be a rabbi. He's back with his own people after traveling the world. You know what that's like after you travel somewhere where customs are different and food is different and all those things. You get back home and it feels so good. And this is the ancient world. You can't just zip from one place to the other. And Paul gets back to his hometown, to his own people. Back to where it all started, back to the first church of Jerusalem. Some of the apostles are still there. uh, Jesus' brother, James, is there leading the church. But as we saw last week, the hard part of all of this is that even some of the his brothers and sisters, even the Christian community, who are the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, are not happy to see Paul because of what he's been saying and doing with the Gentiles, with these outsiders. Paul, he tries to do the right thing. He submits to the leadership in Jerusalem, to the church there. Paul doesn't always do this. We find this from his his letters. But in this case, he does. They say, why don't you go with these men? We read this last week. Why don't you go with these men and go while they give their, their vows at the temple? They're doing a Nazarite vow. And why don't you be, show your righteousness by paying for them? So Paul, out of his own money, goes and he pays for these men in the temple. He participates in their vow. And that's when he's arrested. That's when the riot starts. That's when his own people decide that they're going to kill him right there on the streets and they drag him out of the temple. It's a familiar place for Paul being in prison, but I have a feeling that at this point he thinks this may be the end. This is it. This is where I die. And Jesus comes to him. Jesus comes to him and he says this. This is his message. He says, Paul, keep up your courage for just as you have testified to me for me in Jerusalem, so must you bear witness in Rome. Now that message of comfort might sound a little bit strange to our ears as modern day Christians. When you're at your darkest moment, when you're having your worst day, your worst time, what are the things, what are the messages of comfort that you would like to hear Jesus say to you, maybe something like, everything's going to be okay. I'm going to get you out of this mess. I love you. You're precious to me. Or maybe something else. And none of those are bad, but it's just worth noting that for us, culturally, a lot of the times the messages that we value are the ones that are saying, the bad stuff isn't going to happen anymore. It's all going to be good. Or, self-esteem messages, you know, messages about us individually. Paul's message is different than this. And it's worth noting that Jesus, I mean, Jesus doesn't just appear to Christians after his resurrection, other than a few instances. Very rare. This is one of them. This is a big deal. And you think that, that Jesus would say perhaps something different. And what he says to Paul is, not everything is just going to be fine and okay, and I'm going to save you from prison just like I have many times before. But the message that Jesus gives to Paul is a message about Paul's purpose and about Paul's calling. Jesus is essentially saying to Paul, your life isn't over. You still have purpose. You're still going to make a difference in the lives of people for me. You're going to go to Rome. 
And you're going to speak in Rome just like you did here in Jerusalem. Keep up your courage is how our text translates it. For just as you've testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness in Rome. And it's worth noting that bear witness does not always mean to speak. Bearing witness, that word witness in Greek is the same word where we get our word for martyr. Bearing witness is not always about speaking. And actually, I think that this message that Jesus gives to Paul is something that we may need to hear more than we think we do. Jesus is saying, essentially, in me, in me, your life has meaning. In me, your life has purpose. I'm going to do some great things through you, if you let me. The hard times will come, but I will use them for something greater than just for yourself. And this is just my words I'm putting in there as I think about what Jesus is trying to say and what I think he might need to say to us. I think we, we desire, yeah, we desire messages of comfort and, you know, messages that help keep up our strength. And, and you know, the Holy Spirit gives us those when we need them. I believe that. But I also think that sometimes we're searching for something and we're, we're miserable because we can't find it. And what Jesus says is, I have it for you. It's purpose. You're not worthless. I'm going to use you. You're going to do something great for me. Now, I want to say that in this text, I believe we also have a warning. If what we hear from Jesus is a message of comfort for Paul, what we also have is a warning. Because we hear this whole thing about these, these 40 men and then they plot along with the high council, with the, the chief priests and the elders, what they call the Sanhedrin, this high court. And they've taken a vow and they promise to God Almighty that they are not going to eat until they kill Paul. First it's not eat and drink and then I think someone thinks better of it because the next time it comes up it says we're just not going to eat. That'll give us a little bit more time to take this on, right? So they're not going to eat until they kill Paul. Why? Why make this vow? Why make this vow to God? Because that's what they do. There's only one possible answer. They believe, these 40 men believe that they are doing God's will. They believe that they are on the side of righteousness. Now, the irony of this, of course, is that not so many years before this story, Paul was right there. He was doing the exact same thing. Willing to kill Christians in the name of God. Now, Paul has men just like him who are after his life because he is now proclaiming the good news of Jesus. They, these men are so sure they're on God's side that they are willing to go to battle. They are willing to take a life to kill in the name of God. But the one who is actually on God's side is the one they're trying to kill in the name of God. Going to battle for God. There's a long history of this within not just the Jewish tradition, but in the Christian church, unfortunately. We could talk about things like the Crusades. 
There, I don't know if you know this, they went so far in the Crusades, this was the, during, you know, medieval times, what we call the Dark Ages, when they were sending people from what's now Europe down to reclaim the Holy Land, to reclaim Jerusalem. At first it was knights and soldiers, but eventually they even sent children. Did you know that? They just sent kids down there. They believed God would go with them, and if they die, they're martyrs for God. But we're going to send them so they can take back the Holy Land, right? The Crusades. We could talk about the Inquisition, about what you believed, and about torture and killing people in the name of God on behalf of right doctrine. We could talk about the conquest of the Americas, whether it would be the Spanish conquistadors or for us, some of our own um, ancestors who believed in manifest destiny that you could kill and take any of the, the property, land, and lives of the natives in the name of God. This was our calling. This was our divine calling. We could talk about the conquest and the enslavement and colonization of Africa. We could get closer to home, though, and what it means to do battle for God. I don't know if you know this, but more modern day, not for all of us, but for some of us, if you remember the moral majority movement that began in politics here in the United States, there's still remnants of that. It's disbanded, but there's other parts of that in our politics still today. Did you know that that came out of the battle that happened at Bob Jones University? Because in the 70s, this Christian university, Bob Jones University, was still not integrated. They would allow Asians to their school, but they would not allow African Americans. And so the U.S. government stepped in, and there was court filings, and they said, you have to integrate. For a while then, they would only let married African-American couples attend the school because their biggest fear was that white Christian girls would date a black African-American man. And so out of that came the moral majority because what happened was those people who were at Bob Jones University who wanted to change this and were fighting against this integration of the races in the U.S., they believed that God was on their side, that the races should be kept separate, and they knew that they couldn't get all of the Christians on board with them. So they went to the evangelicals. Now this is an interesting thing, a little piece of our history you may not know, and this is what many of us Christians struggle with today. The term evangelical is not the same as the term fundamental. So fundamentalist Christians are often those who go to battle in politics in the name of God. They want to return back to a different time. They want to use the Bible as a weapon. Evangelical Christians were those who believed, uh, so if you want to see like the beginning really and the sort of the shining star of the evangelical movement was Billy Graham. It's interesting because now his son has taken on the Billy Graham Evangelical Association and has made it fundamentalist. But Billy Graham was not welcome at Bob Jones University because he supported people like Martin Luther King Jr., and so there was this conflict. And, but what happened was these, these fundamentalist Christians realized they needed to get more people on board. So they started calling themselves evangelicals and they found an issue they could go to battle on with and get more people involved with them to help get this racial thing fought. But they did it through the, the use of abortion. And so then we get, you follow that whole battle that's happened in our politics. And we know that there are those who call themselves Christians who in the name of God have taken the lives of people who are involved in the practice of abortion and say God is on our side. We are righteous and we can kill in God's name. Now, you may be thinking, why would you bring up such an emotionally and politically charged topic? The reason I do that is because I want us to understand something. When we read these texts, sometimes they sound so distant to us. 
But I want you to understand that these Jewish leaders who wanted Paul dead, they wanted Paul dead over the acceptance, his acceptance in the name of God of Gentiles of this group that they saw, saw as less than, as these outsiders. This is what caused the riot. We looked at this last week. This is what they were primarily upset about. When he talks about Jesus, they're not happy about that, but it's only when he says that through Jesus, God is accepting these other people, that this becomes an emotionally and politically charged issue for them. And they felt like it was their duty to defend God on this. This wasn't just a theological issue. It was emotional for them. It was cultural for them. And I think when I said this is a warning, I think the question we need to ask ourselves is, does God need us to fight God's battles? If we say yes, then what does that say about who we believe God to be? God needs us to fight on God's behalf. What does that say about what we believe God to be. If we say no, does that mean that we sit back and we don't get involved in politics as Christians? We don't take a stand on issues? Do we not have a calling to defend the weak and fight for the innocent? I would say that there are many who, at least looking back, believe that some of our involvement in something like World War II was divinely inspired and that we were on the side of righteousness. Martin Luther King Jr., who I've talked about a lot these last couple of weeks, we just had his birthday, his holiday. He was actually told this very message from white pastors. He was told, you don't need to battle for God. In fact, you should just be more patient. You need to slow down. So when he was under arrest, when he was in the jail in Birmingham, Alabama, he wrote some letters to his fellow white clergy that is now put together in a little book called Letters from Birmingham Jail. It's a pretty short read. If you have never read it, I highly recommend it to you. It's Martin Luther King speaking to other pastors, white pastors, about this issue. And he, his argument is that God is on the side of justice and the justice delayed, I can't, he says it much better than I do, the justice delayed is really no justice at all. But how did he do it? And I think many Christians today look at him as a shining model of what it means to fight for righteousness or for justice on God's side. Through the way he did it, through nonviolent protest, through open dialogue with those who disagreed with him, and we could talk about more. So getting back to our text, <clears throat> I wonder what happened to those 40 men. You heard the story, right? I mean... Paul is actually taken away from Jerusalem and he's under guard. And we're going to see when we get back into chapter 25 that they're doing the same tactic. They plan on ambushing him when he's being moved again. But it's two years later at that point. So I don't think they made it two years without food. <laughs> so I just wondered, I thought, did any of them starve? I mean, the text doesn't tell us. Did any of them go that far? Did they make their vow to God and go to battle for God and say, I'm simply going to starve to death because I couldn't kill Paul? And then, of course, I wonder what that conversation with Jesus was like if they did. <laughs> I, so I say there's a warning in here for us. There's a message of comfort, but there's also a message of warning. 
And I, I brought this up today as I looked at this text. I was thinking especially in light of the fact that we're ordaining an elder today. We're going to be ordaining Michael as one of our church leaders. And I was thinking about what this means for those of us who are called to be leaders in the church. I mean, we do, and it's for, for all of us, but we do need to be encouraged by the message that Jesus gives us that our life matters. Our little efforts and our little congregation and our little town, they do matter to God. And God wants to use us. We have purpose, every single one of us. But we also need to be warned that it does take careful discernment. It takes listening. It takes maturity to know what God is calling us to do, to be able to set aside some of our own emotions and some of our own cultural baggage to discern God's will for our life in this time, in this place, so that we're not simply making decisions that are self-serving. Amen. <laughs> and we need to follow the example of Jesus. And this is what I want to leave you with. Remember some of his last words? We're about ready to, to move to the table after we do the ordination. We're going to be having communion together, the Lord's Supper. Um, this is where he had his last meal with his disciples. Right before that, this is what he says in John's Gospel. This is John 13. It says, After Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he put on his robes and returned to his place at the table. His place was at the head of the table. And he said to them, Do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you speak correctly because I am. If I, your teacher, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you must wash each other's feet. I've given you an example. Just as I have done, you also must do. I assure you, servants aren't greater than their master, nor are those who are sent greater than the one who sent them. Since you know these things, you'll be happy if you do them. And then Jesus says this, and this is so powerful, verse 18 of, of John 13. He says, I'm not speaking to, about all of you. I know those whom I've chosen. But this is to fulfill the scripture, the one who eats my bread has turned against me. So Jesus is speaking to all of them, but Judas is there. And Jesus knows that he's saying, I'm giving you an example. You need to follow after me, wash each other's feet, be a servant, but I'm not speaking to all of you because one of you isn't going to receive this. I'm telling you this now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am. I assure you that whoever receives someone I sent receives me and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Let's pray. Lord, I know some of us here this morning, we need to have you stand beside us and speak to us words of courage and encouragement because we feel like we're in a battle. We feel like we're struggling. I ask, Lord, for those that need that, that you would do that for them through your Holy Spirit. Lord, I feel like some of us may need to be, to, to be cautioned and warned that we may be becoming presumptuous and speaking on your behalf and thinking we know all that is right. Lord, give us maturity and wisdom. Give us ears to hear the voice of your Holy Spirit. Give us patience. And all of this, Lord, we turn to you. In Jesus' name, amen.